Stanford University. Hello, um, good evening. Um, I'm Aaron Rodrigue, the director of the Stanford Humanities Center. We are delighted to welcome you this evening and especially to welcome Adam Gopnik as the critic in our arts critic in residence series. This program has brought leading arts critics to campus to discuss their craft with the Stanford community and to lead a workshop with students on the art of writing criticism. It is organized by the Humanities Center and co-sponsored by the Stanford Institute for Creativity and the Arts, the School of Humanities and Sciences and the Drama Department. I'd especially like to thank Janice Ross, director of the Dance Division and the Drama Department, who played a key role in creating this series and getting it off the ground. After Adam Gopnik's lecture this evening, we will have time for a few questions. If you'd like to ask a question, please come to the microphones um, in the aisles. Adam Gopnik will also be available for a discussion session at noon tomorrow at the Humanities Center, which is located at uh, 424 Santa Teresa Street near the Faculty Club. You can pick up the reading for discussion se session in the lobby as you leave, or find it on our website at shc.stanford.edu. Now I'd like to turn to Avon Boland, the Bella Mabry and Eloise Mabry Knapp Professor in Humanities and the Director of Stanford's Creative Writing Program, who will introduce Adam Gopnik's lecture this evening. Adam Gopnik wrote a posthumous tribute to John Updike in the New Yorker of February 10th of this year. Despite the lyrical surface of his prose, he writes there, Updike was a realist, as comedians must be, and never even marginally a romantic. Many of the words of praise in that sentence must be visible to Adam Gopnik because they're visible to us when we read his work. He has above all crafted surfaces on which to poise the poetry and comedy of contemporary life. He has become a best-selling author and a much looked for commentator while doing it. And he has maintained an unsentimental posture through it all. In his books, he accompanies the reader through many of the half dusks of modern life from French cities to the weather of childhood in New York, and most recently in the January of this year, through the secular graces of figures like Darwin and Lincoln. And in all of it, he connects and reconnects. Paris to New York, Darwin to Lincoln, style to argument. Of all forms of literature, he said in a 2001 interview, I like best the personal essay. I like the personal comic essay. Adam Gopnik was born in Philadelphia and grew up in Montreal where his parents were both professors of McGill from which he received a BA. He received an MA from the Institute of Fine Arts. Although he is widely known for his essays in the New Yorker, he has had a distinguished career in art and art history. In 1990, he collaborated on the exhibition High and Low, Modern Art and Popular Culture, and Robert Hughes called the book of the same name the indispensable text on its subject. 
His work for The New Yorker has won the National Magazine Award for essay no less than three times and the George Polk Award for magazine reporting. But it is that essay which he called his favorite form of literature, which has been his chief building block. Out of it, he constructed his rueful and searching book, Paris to the Moon, published in 2000, where a daily life and a national one twined around each other to the delight of his readers. This was followed in a continuum by Through the Children's Gate, a home in New York, which took up his twin themes of displacement and relocation, sometimes filtered through the charm of family life and sometimes through the sheer bewilderment of urban living. He found time to publish a book for children called The King in the Window in 2005, to edit the best American essays in 2008, and to write the American culture section of Britannica's entry on the United States. And now in the bicentennial of both Lincoln and Darwin, he has published Angels and Ages, a short book about Darwin, Lincoln, and modern life, which comes as a treatise on dogma and personality. Through all these writings, there runs a single and consistent thread. Adam Gopnik's great gift has been to realize in the moment what history sees only by retrospect and memory only by invention, which is the place where dailiness and meaning meet. And it doesn't simply entail a witty and engaged prose style, although he has all of that, nor a keen sense of irony, though he has that as well. It also means a considerable shifting of the old customs of what goes in the foreground and in the background, and sometimes a collapsing of perspectives. And what has emerged in these rearrangements in his writing is a deeply humane perspective, part critical and part celebration. Since Samuel Johnson is part of tonight's subject, it seems right to quote an affectionate remark which Johnson's biographer, Walter Jackson Bate, made about him. The deeper secret of Samuel Johnson's hypnotic attraction, especially during our own generation, said Bate, lies in the immense reassurance he gives to human nature, which needs and quickly begins to value every friend it can get. Friendship to human nature has drawn a wide audience to Adam Gochnick's work, and we're glad to be part of that audience tonight at Stanford. Thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that genuinely excessive and generous and beautifully precise introduction. Um, uh, I wish my children could have been here to hear it. Um, uh, the place where dailiness and meaning meet, I could not ask for a better summation of everything that I've tried to do in my life as a writer. And though it leaves me feeling more like an imposter even than usual, thank you. Um, uh, first of all, let me say how wonderful it is for me to be here at Stanford. It's a place I've dreamed of coming for a long time. My great uh, teacher, uh, Kirk Varnado, uh, with whom I did the... Um, uh, High and Low Show was a Stanford alum, had magnificent years here, which overlapped with the Bull, Bill Walsh years uh, at Stanford as well. And he always saw Stanford and made me see Stanford as a kind of utopian place where intellect and football merged um, <laughs> happily. And though I'm not here in football season and somewhat wish I was, nonetheless, I have not been a bit disappointed so far by what Stanford is compared to what I imagined it would be. Thank you for asking me. I want to 
make a particular shout out to Sonja Solser, without whom I never would have been able to limp my way here. So thank you. Um, I am now going to proceed to disappoint you all, because what I have to tell you tonight is, I fear, looking through my lecture, extremely commonplace. My, the, the end result, the place I'm going to lead you to, is extremely commonplace. And the path I'm going to take to get you there is extremely digressive and circuitous. So if you have any appetite for a long trip along back roads to an extremely uh, familiar destination, you have come to the right place tonight. Um, what I want to talk about, though, and I hope I can justify the extremely commonplace nature of what I'm going to say to you by saying that I think that criticism is, in the best sense, a commonplace activity. Um, you know, someone once said about truth, I don't know if any philosophy students here know about you know, Tarski's truth theorem, and someone once said, the beauty of it is it's trivial because the idea of truth is trivial. It's one we use every day. Criticism, it seems to me, is an activity exactly that we engage in every day. It's not a highly specialized expert activity. It's the activity you all were engaged in for the most part, muttering as you were before I got up here about what the new Star Trek movie is like or how bad last week's issue of The New Yorker was or whatever it is you were muttering about was, in that sense, a form of criticism. But as, as criticism uh, goes on, I think it takes familiar shapes. And the first thing that I think we think about when we think about criticism is to ask what good it is, what good does it do, and why anyone should bother writing it at all. I took my title tonight, How Dr. Johnson Can Save Your Life, obviously as a, a little bow to Alain de Baton, whose wonderful book, How Proust Can Save Your Life, uh, supplied uh, the idea of the title. And what I like about de Baton's book so much is that though he is an absolutely uh, refined and elegant Proustian, he sees Proust not just as a remote uh, writer, but as somebody whose, uh, whose ideas, whose thoughts, whose writing interpenetrates and lives with what we do and think about every day. And when we think about criticism, uh, the first thought we might have is, what relevance does it have to our everyday life, the kind of criticism that gets written and published? Uh, isn't there a good reason why it seems to be disappearing from the pages of our daily newspapers and from the run of our general magazines? After all, we can say just as there were no conductors in the age of Mozart, and there were no directors in the age of Shakespeare. There were no critics, so far as we know, no professional critics in the age of Cervantes or Aeschylus or pretty much anyone else who matters. Isn't it a kind of secondary or parasitic occupation rather than a primary and necessary one? It seems to me the criticism, when we think about it, criticism of literature is what I'm thinking of primarily, but we could probably extend it, I think, fairly well to criticism of music or the fine arts. Criticism comes in three broad flavors or model, which are more or less sequential, but uh, not necessarily so, which interpenetrate in time and which persist to this day. The first kind is what we might call system criticism. Uh, the, the critic is systematizer. And that's the kind, of course, that we in our civilization associate primarily with academic criticism, with the kind of criticism that goes on in English departments and art history departments. But it far predates, of course, uh, the birth of the modern university. It's the kind of aesthetics, the kind of criticism that Aristotle practices, where you try and come up with systematic explanations for why it is that individual works of art, or more broadly, whole families of works of art, move us and stir us and change us. What makes tragedy work, Aristotle asks, and then tells us it's because it 
purges our soul with terror and pity. That idea to make systematic explanations of works of art, which may apply to particular cases, but which seek broader and even universal laws, is the kind of thing that systematic critics or system-making critics do. And it's a kind of activity that persists uh, up to our day, even when it becomes a kind of anti-systematic criticism, where the end of academic criticism is not, as it was for so long, to show you how a work of art uh, mysteriously clings together, but instead to show you, as has been true for so much of academic criticism in the past 25 years, to show you how subversively it falls apart, how the appearance of order, in fact, is merely an illusion in which, like the cat running off the edge of the cliff, what seems to be forward motion and purpose is merely uh, an illusion based on emptiness. Um, the systematic critic and the anti-systematic critic in that way are engaged, it seems to me, in the same kind of thing. And it's a kind of thing, as I say, that goes on chiefly in universities, though it doesn't have to. Second kind of criticism, it seems to me, that we find in the world is what I like to call power criticism. Power criticism. It uh, is basically the kind of criticism that people talk about when they talk about what it is that critics do. If you ever have, if you're a fan of 40s movies, you know, 40s film noir, like um, Laura or um, uh, uh, All About Eve, not exactly a film noir, but the same kind of thing, there's always a power critic in it, Waldo Lidecker or um, what's the other one called uh, in, in uh, but there's always someone, and what we mean by a critic is someone who has enormous cultural authority, which he applies in a stinging or punitive way to individual works of art. Um, he's the guy or she's the woman who picks out the hits and labels the misses. Everyone lives in fear of their verdict, and everybody admires them for the, the nerve of their judgment and the uh, perfection of their prescience, their ability to see ahead and see what's going on. Um, when I was trying to think as I prepared this talk about when that kind of power criticism began, I'm not entirely sure, but I think it's a post-Renaissance invention for the most part. That is the idea that the critic's job should be to sort out brutally the good from the bad, even as it's happening. Remember that moment in uh, As You Like It, in Shakespeare's As You Like It, where um, Jake, when Jake says to Orlando, what is your love's name? And Orlando says, her name is Rosalind. And Jaquie says, I do not like her name. And Orlando says, there was no thought of pleasing you when she was christened. Um, that, it seems to me, is a moment in human consciousness. Jaquie's is the type of the critic. And I mean that quite seriously. He's someone who's read Machiavelli. He's read Montaigne. And he's addressing the world in a highly critical and suspicious fashion. And that kind of power criticism is, of course, one of the great traditions in American criticism. It's the tradition of someone like the art critic Clement Greenberg, who became famous and feared for his ability to spot the hits and decry the misses. Someone like my old colleague, Pauline Kael, who had a similarly dominating position, not just among viewers of movies in the 1960s and 70s, but among makers of movies, somebody whose intimacy with uh, important filmmakers was an important part of their own sense of themselves. They lived in fear of her judgment, and they were desperate for her approval and her ability to launch or to support the career of someone like uh, Robert Altman or Francis Ford Coppola was terribly important. Edmund Wilson, a predecessor of mine at The New Yorker, is another instance of the power critic at his finest, being able both to uh, uh, sponsor writers as varied as F. Scott Fitzgerald and Vladimir Nabokov, and to uh, uh, critique uh, writers as varied as Evelyn Waugh and J.R.O. Tolkien. 
But it seems to me that there's a third kind of criticism that you can find out there in the tradition, people writing about books or people writing about movies or about the arts. And that's something that I've come to call or used to like to call cabaret criticism, cabaret criticism. And that's a kind of criticism whose chief end is neither to explain to you systematically what it is that works of art should do or what writing uh, is like, nor to tell you uh, which writer is better than uh, another writer and what to decry and what to uh, celebrate. But instead, its job or its function is to, in effect, write a parallel uh, essay on the same theme or on some similar themes to what it's writing about. Um, uh, Hazlitt is a wonderful cabaret critic of that time, William Hazlitt, the great essayist. Um, Randall Jarrell, the American poet. Clive James, the Australian uh, writer. Again and again, we find um, a particular kind of criticism uh, whose primary aim is neither to explain to us nor to um, point us in the right direction, but in plain English, to entertain us, to entertain us by creating a work of criticism that exists in parallel to the objects that it's criticizing and gives us some kind of joy in that way. And what it seems to me that that criticism has as an idea of criticism is not the, <coughs> the Magus-like idea of the system critic, the idea of being a sorcerer who can explain all, nor what I think of as the medicinal model of the power critic, where uh, the writer or the artist comes to the power critic's cabinet and is given a prescription or condemned to death. Um, but that the end of the cabaret critic, as I see him or as I understand him, or her, is uh, something much simpler. And that is simply that the end of criticism is to be writing about writing. That is, that the point of practicing criticism, the reason that we do it, is because we are moved to write about writing, or write about art, or write about the movies, in exactly the same way, and for the same reasons, that we're moved to write about anything. That is to say, in this tradition, it seems to me, the motive of the critic is uh, exactly the same kind of motive that moves the novelist or that moves the poet. That is to say, there's some piece of human experience that's become so obsessive or so central for them that they cannot help but write about it. They cannot help but have something to say about it. And the thing that they find obsessively interesting, compulsively necessary, uh, the only natural subject they want, are other works of art. We write about writing in exactly the way that novelists write about sex or the way that poets write about landscapes because in some sense we can't help ourselves because the role that literature or the arts plays in our lives is so entirely central that those secondary worlds of poetry or prose are what we need, what we use uh, to record our experience uh, of the primary world. We write criticism in that tradition, it seems to me, because some part of our life is spent reading or looking or tasting, and we want to record our experience, our excitement, our distaste, our confusion, at those secondary worlds, just as in poetry or prose, we usually record our experience of the primary world. Criticism, in that tradition, it seems to me, is just a form of writing that takes other writing as its subject, as epic poems take heroes as theirs, or sonnet takes, sonnets take lovers as theirs. Critics, as I've written, are not in that view, to writers as doctors are to patients, but as bearded ladies are to trapeze artists. Another sadder act in the same big show. <laughs> now, obviously, 
uh, you don't need x-ray vision to see that I quite like this tradition, um, <laughs> believe in it, and in some uh, Lilliputian way would place myself within it. But that's not my purpose here tonight. Uh, my purpose here tonight is a little bit different. What I want to say to you is if I think about who uh, the best cabaret critic is, who the most inspiring cabaret critic is, who we can look to for lessons about how to go about this, the one I turn to again and again and again in my life, as Alain de Baton might turn to Proust in his, is Samuel Johnson, the great Dr. Johnson of uh, 18th century London. Now, I know any of you who read Johnson or have read about Johnson uh, in your time in university or in your time at home will probably be a little puzzled or shocked by my... Um, uh, imputing Johnson by my offering Johnson, of all writers, as an example not of the power critic or the systematic critic, but of the cabaret critic. Because uh, superficially, at least, it seems that Johnson is a model both of the system critic and of the power critic. He was uh, somebody who tried to systematize what we call kind of neoclassical beliefs about art and apply them to the poetry of his time. And he was a hugely powerful figure in 18th century uh, uh, literature in the life of 18th century literary criticism. But it seems to me that when you actually read what Johnson has to say about the function of literature and the function of criticism in his uh, great writings, and I refer here chiefly to what I think is the best uh, book of criticism in English, Johnson's Lives of the Poets, uh, as well as in all of his uh, wonderful essays about literature, there I think you see a model an intimation, an idea of this kind of cabaret criticism uh, raised to a high level of intelligence, severity, even austerity that remains inspiring to us today. Um, Johnson, just quickly for those of you to whom he's a vague or uh, general name, uh, is a, a model in lots of ways. One of the ways is, is that he was never a professor. He has uh, the title doctor affixed to him throughout history, and we use it by courtesy and convenience because his great biographer, James Boswell, in the, uh, in the life that he wrote of him at the end of the 18th century, calls him always Dr. Johnson. But he was really sort of no more a doctor than Dr. Brown or Dr. Pepper. Um, he <laughs> got a, an honorary degree at, after he had, uh, just as he was finishing uh, the great Dictionary of English, but it was purely an honorary degree. He was, in fact, a dropout. He wasn't able to finish his studies at Oxford, in part because he couldn't afford them. And he traveled to London after a, a miserable uh, uh, failure as a schoolmaster in the middle of, of the 18th century and came to London to do whatever literary work there was to do. And he came to London at a time when there was, in a sense, no literary work to do. That's a long story involving a fundamental change, not at all unlike the fundamental change that's going on in our literary world right now, where the old model of aristocratic patronage was drying up and the new model of selling books, particularly novels, to a, a broader bourgeois audience hadn't yet come into being. It was a horrible time to be a writer and Johnson is the model of a hack writer of the highest kind in that way. He wrote everything, every imaginable piece of miscellaneous journalism that he possibly could, all at an incredibly high level, all for no money at all, until finally he came upon the idea of writing the first real dictionary of the English language, which made his reputation he wrote it himself, uh, assembled it himself, and then eventually earned for him a pension. Uh, and once he had the pension, a pension from the government, he was free to do what he liked to do best in the world, which was to um, sleep late uh, and go out in the evenings and talk about books, talk to his friends about books and ideas. 
and we're blessed to have in Boswell's Life of Johnson uh, the best record of uh, somebody talking about books and ideas uh, that exists, I think, certainly in English and maybe in, in any language. Johnson didn't think much of the profession of critics. Johnson didn't think much of criticism, even though that was what he practiced himself primarily, uh, as a, a, an enterprise. He wrote once, criticism is a study by which men grow important and formidable at very small expense. Every man can exert such judgment as he has upon the work of others, and he whom nature has made weak and idleness kept ignorant may yet support his vanity by the name of a critic. Criticism is a goddess easy of access and forward of advance who will meet the slow and encourage the timorous. The want of meaning she supplies with words and the want of spirits she recompenses with malignity. Um, Johnson, in other words, sees, is describing there the people we know, the, um, the system critic for whose want of meaning, the goddess of criticism, all too easily supplies words, and the power critic for whose want of real spirit or real courage uh, she recompenses with malignity, with ill will, and with the fear that derives from ill will. Um, what then did Dr. Johnson, who was a great critic, a compulsive critic, somebody who talked all the time about books and literature, what did he think criticism could do? What did he think criticism ought to do? What kind of criticism um, did, uh, did, he, did he attempt himself? First of all, uh, though in conversation he could be brutal, he never thought that the role of criticism uh, is in any sense medicinal. In all of his criticism, you find as you read it, and if I have one... Uh, little ambition tonight, it would be to send some of you back out to read Johnson's Lives of the Poets, as I hope in my uh, last book, Angels and Ages, at least I may have got some people to reread On the Origin of Species, that wonderful book. But if you read Johnson's criticism, what you see is that he first of all rules out the idea that the end or aim of the critic is to rank authors, to say, this guy is great, this guy is not. Um, this one should be allowed in the Parnassus, and this one should not be. He saw that as a very secondary activity. He wrote once, um, the inquiry, how far man may extend his designs or how high rate his native force, is of far greater dignity than in what rank we shall place any particular performance. In other words, the real job of criticism is not the job of the power critic. It's not the job of saying, this guy here, this, uh, this one below. It, the job is to try and penetrate as best you can into some of the mysteries of literature. Uh, try and understand what it is, <coughs> excuse me, um, what it is that makes reading work, what it is that makes books work, what it is that makes uh, literature work. And he wrote once again in words I love, the common sense of readers asked to define what it is that gives us some sense of literary value, what it is the critics should search. And he says, the common sense of readers, uncorrupted with literary prejudice, after all the refinements of subtlety and the dogmatism of learning, must be finally decided, by whom must be finally decided, all claims to poetical honors. In other words, the idea that Johnson had was that there is a community of readers. There's a big implicit table of readers. And they are the people who decide on literary merit. They're the ones who decide on literary value. And it's exactly through that extended conversation that the business of criticism proceeds. And it seems to me a much better name for what I have called uh, in the past uh, cabaret criticism. I will start calling here tonight conversational criticism in exactly that spirit. Not only criticism that begins in conversation, as in all of our collective mutterings before uh, I got up here tonight, 
but more broadly, the kind of conversation that necessarily, the kind of criticism that necessarily begins in our attempt to define our values not through resort to a system, nor through resort to authority, but exactly through the kind of argument that makes uh, civilization move forward. Johnson, his great question was not how to write or what to write, but why write? What is it? What's the pleasure that people can take in this horribly vexatious and miserable world? What pleasure can we take in reading accounts of imaginary people set to rhythmic language or to rhyme language populated by characters who never actually existed? Um, and his answer, because he was a highly religious man, was that the biggest mistake you could make was to try and make literature into some kind of substitute religion, where you set up literature or the arts uh, as the equivalent or as a substitute for religious faith, in which you had a panoply of sainted uh, heroes in, wh in whom you regularly genuflected towards. No, he was too religious to make literature into a substitute religion, and so he ends by making it a serious recreation, a rational pleasure to be judged by and for its wit. Um, and no critic in that way has ever been wiser than Johnson was about the limits of criticism and about how few rules can ever be made for writing. Um, he says in a wonderful uh, moment that the whole attempt to define what poetry is, was poetry the work of Pope and Dryden, the great uh, neoclassical tradition of the rhyme couplet, or was it, uh, could it be found better in the works of the, uh, the first, the kind of uh, early proto-romantics in Gray and Young, who were part of his time? And he said, after having reflected on this question, he wrote, to circumscribe poetry by a definition will only always show the narrowness of the definer. That isn't the critic's job to try and define, on Johnson's view, what it is uh, that, that uh, is poetry or is the novel. Um, good writing for Johnson is simply a mixture of page turning and point making. That is, it should be something that keeps our attention engaged, and it should be something that has a point to make, uh, an argument to give, a moral principle to illustrate. The first thing seems obvious to us, but I don't think it can be uh, emphasized enough. That is the way in which Johnson uh, emancipates literature in many ways from the sermon, from the job simply of moral instruction. Because the one thing he insists on, and it's a wonderful passage which you must allow me to read you, you must indulge me by letting you read you, from Johnson's Life of Prior, uh, which uh, should be uh, posted in every uh, creative writing department in the country. Uh, Johnson writes, tediousness is the most fatal of all literary faults. Negligences or errors are single and local, but tediousness pervades the whole. Other faults are censured and forgotten, but the power of tediousness propagates itself. <laughs> he that is weary the first hour is still more weary the second. <laughs> As bodies forced into motion, contrary to their tendency, pass more and more slowly through every successive interval of space. Um, I, I, it's easy to miss the enormous wit of what Johnson is saying there. He's saying that boring books are so boring that they even break Newton's laws of gravitation. <laughs> they break the law of acceleration. They go slower the longer that they go on. Now, that's, that's a wonderfully witty and I think completely accurate and in its own way a very kind of emancipating thing to read because it shakes you of the obligation to take books or plays or poetry seriously because it is boring. Um, and that's something that's always been part of both the system tradition and the power tradition. Um, if it's boring, it must be interesting. If it's tedious, there's probably something going on that's uh, over my head. And Johnson would have none of that. Uh, Johnson insisted that the fact of tediousness was itself the greatest fault 
of literature. And even uh, when, uh, when dealing with the greatest, with, with writing that he saw as indisputably great, the uh, insertion of tediousness, the fact of boringness, was enough to send him away. Uh, it, one might say that his low opinion of the professional critic gave him a very high opinion of the amateur reader and of the amateur reader's responses. Um, he once uh, said about Paradise Lost, for instance, which he greatly admired, that the key thing about it is that no one has ever wanted it to be longer than it is. <laughs> Again, a wonderfully truthful, emancipatory sentence that speaks not for the expert uh, observer, but for the amateur reader. Um, he had the courage to say what I fear is true, and I say this as a passionate uh, uh, fan, that Shakespeare's puns can be tiresome and his clowns are often no longer funny. Johnson's standard is always that of immediate pleasure, unmediated by long-term good. He wrote again about Milton, that we read Milton for instruction, retire harassed and overburdened, and look elsewhere for recreation. We desert our master and seek for companions. Um, it seems to me that in all of those ways, what Johnson is trying to get us to do in all of his criticism is not turn to the system, not turn to the expert, but to rely on our own judgment, to rely on our own sense as common readers for some kind of common consent, for some consensus derived not from authority, but exactly from the ongoing play of literary conversation. We practice criticism because we cannot help ourselves but talk about the writing we admire. And the way we practice criticism is essentially as a social activity among other readers at a common table of shared conversation. A Playhouse for Johnson is not a pulpit and a book is not a Bible. He was certainly, and above any critic I know, serious about literature. But he thought writing was serious exactly as conversation is serious, an occasion for observation and argument, not as sex and sermons are serious, a repository of fears and hunger. Any criticism for Johnson that doesn't rise from the table, from a body of ongoing discussion, from the kind of obsessive interest uh, that motivates the conversational critic, that kind, any other kind of criticism won't count and won't last. <coughs> it seems to me that if we think about it, uh, Johnson's right. Johnson's right. Because one of the first things that strikes you when you look at the history of the system critic, systematic critic, or of the power critic, is that theirs is largely a history of more misses than hits. Nothing seems to us a funnier or sadder in retrospect than all the old systems of criticism that have dominated the world. Um, we, we, can, we find it hard to take seriously the absolute rules of Aristotelian criticism. We look back on, if we grew up in the family of an English professor as I did, we look back on the reign of the new critics with their obsessive desire to find irony and ambiguity in every corner. We find it narrow, we find it parched, and I dare say um, 50 years from now, perhaps even sooner, we'll see some of the same habits of the kind of French philosophical criticism that's grown up in the last 25 years. We will find equally uh, failed. And certainly, when we examine the work or look at the uh, at the lives of the power critics, of the great power critics, what strikes us most, I think, is how wrong they usually were, how wrong they often were. Clement Greenberg, the great art critic, and I use the word great advisedly, he genuinely was a great critic, had enormous penetration at a crucial moment in the history of American art when nobody saw the greatness of Jackson Pollock, really, except Clement Greenberg. Nonetheless, he continued on like a gambler in a, on a losing streak in a Las Vegas casino and made 
and made with the same dogmatic tone of certitude one judgment after another that in retrospect now looked to us extremely poor and extremely false. The problem wasn't with Greenberg, the problem was with that kind of activity. It always will end up uh, uh, with more hits than misses. The power critic is like a power hitter. If he's hitting 200, uh, he's doing pretty well. Um, the conversational critic, it seems to me, uh, on the other hand, uh, has a better chance of actually writing criticism that lasts, that goes on, uh, exactly because it is part or can remain part of an ongoing conversation. Uh, Dr. Johnson is wrong very often to our mind. He was wrong very often about in his uh, uh, distaste for poets like, or his suspicion of poets like Ray and Young. Uh, he takes for granted things that will not seem to us easy to take for granted anymore, uh, as for instance that, the, that Dryden's satirical poems will always be current and so on. He's not any more right than anyone else, but what he has to say, since it depends on the effort to isolate and, and distinguish uh, exactly what it is that we experience in literature, what our true experience of writing is, uh, still provokes and moves us today. Perhaps his greatest single piece of critical writing is a model of that. Some of you may have read it in college. It's when he's writing in his preface to um, Shakespeare, to a collected edition of Shakespeare that he didn't actually edit. He was a very poor textual editor, but that he wrote a wonderful preface to. And the standard thing to say against Shakespeare in the 18th century was that Shakespeare was um, dubious, a bit barbaric, because he violated all the unities. You know, in classical tragedy, this is what Voltaire always had to say about Shakespeare, in classical tragedy of the kind that the, the, the Greeks wrote and that the great French figures of the 17th century wrote as well, uh, uh, a tragedy should take place in a unified period of time, over 24 hours or in some time, so you were never violating uh, too much the, uh, the, the notion that everything was happening in one scene in one time. That gave the action greater credibility and therefore greater emotional force. It's one of the basic rules of Aristotelian drama. And Shakespeare, of course, violates it all the time. We're in uh, Egypt one moment and we're in Rome the next. Uh, people are, are making uh, bad sexual puns in one scene and then they're speaking elevated diction in the next scene. We leap from uh, the side of uh, the, from the grave digger into the palace and then back from the palace into the grave digger and from the coast of Bohemia, which has no coast, to the island of Sicily. And it all takes place in this mishmash and as a consequence, uh, Shakespeare was much criticized. And Johnson writes wonderfully, that it's absurd to think that. It's a, that's, that's a foolish rule because it implies that people actually credit what goes on in the stage as though it were really happening. Um, and it implies that our experience of drama is an experience of illusion. Johnson says, says it obviously isn't at all. He said, the spectators throughout the drama are entirely in their senses. They know that they're watching a play. They know that what they're seeing on stage is a kind of fiction. And once you concede that what they're seeing is a complete fiction in which actors and actresses are dressing up and reading out lines, um, then it doesn't matter uh, whether you're in Bohemia or in Rome. He who will uh, concede that he is in, uh, uh, in ancient Greece will just as easily concede that five minutes later he is in ancient Egypt. So Johnson has this wonderfully liberating freedom from rules exactly because he asks himself not what does authority say, nor how can I make myself an authority. He asks us, what is your real experience of theater, of literature, as it's taking place? Now, one of the things that the kind of criticism that I'm talking about, the kind of cabaret criticism, as I used to call it, conversational criticism, as I'll start calling it tonight, one of the interesting things that happens in that kind of criticism 
it seems to me, is that it always tends towards biography. It always tends, sooner or later, to get <coughs> concerned with, obsessed with lives. That was certainly true of Johnson. Johnson said at one point that really um, the only kind of, of criticism he liked was biographical criticism. Uh, in, when he was on a tour with Johnson, in, 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 with Boswell, I beg your pardon, in Scotland, um, someone said to him, the history of manners is the most valuable. I never set a high value in any other kind. And Johnson said, nor I. And therefore, I esteem biography as what comes nearest ourselves, all that we can use. And his greatest book is A Series of Lives, The Lives of the English Poets. And it seems to me that whenever you look at this intuition, this third tradition, this tradition of conversational criticism, it almost always tends to blend into biography and into biographical criticism. Now, <coughs> why is that? Well, there's one obvious reason for it. Um, it's not a very distinguished reason. It's that people are interested in other people. You can always sell a biography before you can sell a close reading of a text. Publishers publish biographies every day. Uh, they leave the close readings of text to university presses. Um, so there's an obvious and rather vulgar uh, professional reason for it amongst those conversational critics who, as they tend to do, write for a living. Um, but I think there's a, a deeper reason for it as well. One of Johnson's greatest uh, essays on, uh, and one of the really indispensable essays on criticism in English is The Rambler, one of the long series of essays that he wrote. He wrote two, The Rambler and The Idler. Rambler, uh, number 60, um, in which he talks about the reasons that biography is our way into uh, literature and our way into life. Um, he writes, um, I have often thought that there has rarely passed a life of which a judicious and faithful narrative would not be useful. For not only every man has in the mighty mass of the world great numbers in the same condition with himself, to whom his mistakes and miscarriages, escapes and expedients would be of immediate and apparent use, but there is such uniformity in the state of man, considered apart from separable declarations and disguises, that there is scarce any possibility of good or ill but is common to humankind. A great part of the time of those who are placed at the greatest distance by fortune or temper must unavoidably pass in the same manner. And though when the claims of nature are satisfied, caprice and vanity and accident begin to produce discriminations and peculiarities, yet the eye is not very heedful or quick, which cannot discover the same causes still terminating their influences in the same effects. We are all prompted by the same motives, all deceived by the same fallacies, all animated by the same hopes, obstructed by danger, entangled by desire, and seduced by pleasure. Now, in those very grand and Latinate sentences, he's saying something quite original and strong. He's saying that the old distinction by which we go to see tragedy, because we're uh, particularly interested in the lives of kings and princes who represent an order of mag uh, magnanimous nobility above our own, that that idea is false, that the reason we're interested in other lives, whether hugely elevated or very low, is because we see in every life uh, a mirror of our own. Uh, and that, I think, is what leads uh, conversational criticism at its best uh, to be drawn always to biographical criticism, to be drawn always to the writing of lives. It's exactly the idea that a book, a work of art of any kind, isn't simply a contraption, a mechanism made by one person to be uh, taken apart, dissected, or decoded by someone else, but its miracle is exactly that it is the impress of a life in which we can see a mask that can become our own. Let me leap, I said I was going to digress, let me leap digressively uh, for a moment from Johnson 
to uh, another one of my own pet obsessive subjects, and that is uh, uh, biographical criticism of Shakespeare. Um, I've written about it in The New Yorker when Stephen Greenblatt wrote his wonderful book, Will in the World, and it's a, a genre that I deeply love. And of course, the big joke about this genre is that it is a, a, a subject with no object. It's an academic discipline with no subject because we know essentially nothing about the life of Shakespeare. And what we know is fragmentary and tiny. And yet, the strange thing is, is though every great Shakespeare critic, every great Shakespeare scholar says at some point in their life, I will never do be so silly as to write a life of Shakespeare because I know that no such thing is possible. Everyone eventually does it. Stephen Greenblatt, after swearing it off for many years, uh, wrote a wonderful book, Will in the World, where he tries to understand the relation between Shakespeare's life and Shakespeare's work. And uh, 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 Bate, uh, the new great uh, English critic, has just written a wonderful new book called uh, uh, Spirit of the Age about Shakespeare's life and Shakespeare's work after having sworn off and having slagged off, as the British say, Greenblatt, for having done his five years ago. He does his as now. Now, why do we do that, if you think about it? We know that the documents, what we know about Shakespeare's life is completely fragmentary and almost non-existent. It's a series of lawsuits that he got involved in, uh, a few dedications, um, passing references, uh, shaky signatures. So why then are we drawn to it? It can't be, I think, that we're drawn to uh, Shakespeare biography, which is the closest thing we have to non-biography biography, because we believe that Shakespeare's life, in some sense, provides a key to his works. It can't, or if it does, it's a key that has no jagged edges to it. It's a completely bland and blunt key. It is, I think, that we uh, want, whenever we read, we, in effect, make an imaginative leap to create the person who created the thing that we have before us. It's not that we want to read from the poet's life to the work, is that the work in its very liveliness, in its very animation, makes us think inevitably of the person who made it. You know, there's a, there's a theory in psychology, and it's very rich. My sister, who lives not far from here at Berkeley, uh, was one of the people who helped create it called Other Minds Theory. And what it says is that babies, at the, at, when they're tiny, tiny babies, the first thing that babies do is they look you in the face and they try to guess what you're feeling. When they're one years old, two years old, they develop a theory of other minds in which all they understand that the actions in the world aren't just being caused mechanically by things totally unlike them, but are being caused for reasons by other creatures who have exactly the same kind of minds that they do. It's a fascinating field of study, and I urge you to read my sister's good book, The Scientist in the Crib, in which she discusses it. And the simplest way to understand it is that the key breakthrough was to understand that autistic kids don't have other minds theory, can't understand that, that other people have minds like their own. It's the simplest way to see what it's about. Well, that's the kind of creatures we are. We don't look at anything in the world, unless we're, we're cursed with autism, as simply being a mechanical object, an artifact in the world. We see everything around us as the creation of another mind. And our speculation, our desire, our imaginative leap into another mind, even when we know, as in the case of Shakespeare, that the other mind is in some final sense unreachable, unknowable to us. That's part of the pursuit of literature. It's part of the conversation of literature, part of the talk of literature. Um, there's a wonderful moment in Stephen Greenblatt's book on Shakespeare when he talks about um, a character, someone who wrote the first nasty thing about Shakespeare that was ever written, uh, named Robert Greene. And he makes a, a wonderful uh, suggestive argument that uh, Green was the original of Falstaff. Now, his, his evidence for it is 
fragmentary and tiny. Green had a wife named Dahl and a mistress, M, and he had a thuggish brother named Cutting Ball. And it seems to be very close to the world of uh, Falstaff and Mistress Quickly in Henry IV, uh, part one and two. That was the way people talked about him. And Greenblatt's idea is that that must have been, because we know that Shakespeare and Green were at one point friends, that that must have been uh, the kind of uh, personage who Shakespeare drew on for his portrait of, of uh, Falstaff. But the point of that, it seems to me, is not whether we buy it or not, whether we believe that Green was the original of Falstaff, but exactly that when we start thinking about uh, the plays in that way, we start understanding them not as sort of abstract games of metaphysical chess played by a philosopher, but as literature, as things that rely on the particularities of life, that reproduce as best they can, that invent and imagine the particularities of life. Um, good biographical criticism, when we practice it, doesn't supply us with easy answers to hard texts. What it does, it dissolves all our determinism. It helps us overthrow our idea that there's a systematic explanation of any literature. And it replaces those determinisms, it seems to me, not, as I say, with gossipy puzzle solution certainties, but exactly with glimpses of life as it's lived and art as it's made. Good criticism in that way is always a map of possibilities, roads taken, neglected, and cut fresh. And the map of art, I think, is never more vivid than when the possibilities of a period are incarnated as the people in a life. We never understand another time or another mind better than when we can understand its values, its problems, its dilemmas, its crises, not in terms of the abstract play of historical forces, but in terms of their incarnation in particular lives. That's what literature does, and it's an act of imaginative empathy on our part to try and seek beyond literature to the sources in the real world that may have inspired it. That, I think, is why Johnson loved biographical criticism. That's why I think the conversational critic will always tend to write lives. Now, I hear some of you muttering conversationally in the back. <laughs> Aren't you saying then, really, Dr. Johnson will save our life Aren't you saying, really, that what criticism should be is conversation enlivened by gossip? Yes, that is exactly what I'm saying. That is exactly what I'm saying. I think criticism always is at its finest, essentially, good conversation enlivened by good gossip. Um, but I think it should be the highest kind of conversation, and it should be the most significant kind of gossip, not necessarily the most elevated kind of gossip, uh, but the most significant kind, the kind that leads us to understand something of the other minds who makes objects. The other day, if you'll allow me one last digression, um, I was reading a biography of, of one of the greatest and seemingly one of the least conversational of critics, uh, William uh, Empson. Uh, it's not his first name. Empson, who wrote Seven Types of Ambiguity, it used to be a hugely important book, probably isn't as much anymore. And someone said, and people would protest, that the kind of criticism he practiced, which depended on finding seven or eight different meanings for small phrases like that beautiful little phrase, bear ruin choirs, in, Shakespeare's, uh, in one of Shakespeare's sonnets, which Empson shows can mean seven or eight different things. And people said, it's so refined, it's so over-refined, so over-intellectualized, that we lose all touch with real experience. We lose all touch with life. And Empson said, and this uh, struck me, moved me enormously, said, no, 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 no. He said, it's what enables us to re-enter the life, exactly because in our common speech, in the common way we speak, our words are always filled with ambiguity. Our language is always filled with ambiguity. And it's like those wonderful scenes in Pinter or Mamet, where Pinter, where Pinter has two characters saying, 
good morning, good day, good morning, good day, and a whole life and a whole series of dark intimations are there just because of the different meanings that good morning or good day have at different at successive moments in the scene. Or in David Mamet, for instance, is a master of this as well. You know, says, someone says, fuck you, and he says, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. And a whole conversation takes place through our sympathetic understanding of all the ambiguities loaded into fuck you in different, said in different times, different moment. And Empson's point was that's the way real language works. That's the way actual language works in the world. And the idea that there's another kind of language which is only specified in which we can track down and uh, pin down precise meaning at every time, that's a pedant's fantasy. That's a, a, a system critic's notion. And he said, no, I'm not, in my terms, a system critic at all. I am exactly a conversational critic because I'm trying to restore to poetry the quality uh, of our understanding of common speech. I mention that not only because I was uh, moved by it, but also because I mean it as an antidote to the notion that thinking of criticism in conversational terms necessarily means trivializing it, necessarily means uh, slackening, necessarily means lowering the bar so that it simply becomes whatever you and I say to each other over uh, dinner afterwards. I think that the highest kind, the most austere, the most rigorous and demanding, and even in a sense theoretical criticism, can be uh, conversational criticism uh, of that kind. A love of complicated form and a faith in common sense are related, not separate. What then do I think we should uh, take away from Johnson? What then do I think we should try and take away from this tradition? It's exactly an idea that I think is in the heart of what it means to be human. Um, I say in my new book, in Angels and Ages, that one of the things that we live with as modern people is a different sense of what humanism is, what humanism ought to be. The classic, the Renaissance idea of humanism is familiar to us all. Man is the measure of all things. But we really live as modern people uh, with a different idea, and that is that all things can be measured by man. That is that there's nothing that lies outside our ability to understand, to comprehend. There's nothing that's uh, alien to our practice of uh, analysis, our practice of comprehension. And that what lies between an ancient idea of authority and a modern terror of anarchy is argument. Between authority and anarchy lies argument. And at its best, conversational criticism of the kind that Johnson practiced to a supreme degree, of a kind that I believe uh, can go on uh, indefinitely, that kind of conversational criticism is simply the practice of argument turned into an every evening affair. And one more good thing about it, one more good thing about it, anyone can do it. We live in a time when the role of the professional critic is in crisis. Newspapers, as we know, are dispensing with book review sections. Magazines are letting go their art critics. This is a huge tragedy if you know the people involved, and it's a great loss to readers. But it's not a fatal loss to readers, and it's not a fatal loss to literature if you believe, as I do, in the primacy of the tradition of conversational criticism. Because the only thing you have to do to join in that tradition, the tradition of Johnson, is to open your mouth. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, thanks. Be delighted to take a, a couple questions. As I say, tomorrow, if for those of you who are enraged, offended, or <laughs> bewildered by what I just tried to say in the past hour, we're going to have a real 
proper give and take about it tomorrow afternoon if you're free. But I'll be delighted to take a few questions now, too. There's a microphone right here. First question is always the hardest. It's like the first person to jump into the ocean. After that, everybody feels free. Where's my question? Oh, up here. Okay. <laughs> I didn't even see the bleachers. That's a, it's an, it's a, did everyone hear the question? No, let me repeat it. It's, it, it was actually a three-part question. Um, what did I think about Sam, what Samuel Johnson could teach to bloggers? Which is an extremely good question. And was there any uh, kind of literary ferment going on in the world right now? Did I understand this properly? That is in some way comparable to the ferment of the 1920s among American writers in Paris. Is that more or less it? Yes, sir. Okay. Um, first thing, which is a fascinating thing, which I um, have been thinking about a lot lately. I mentioned Johnson. One of the things, one reasons I mentioned those episodes of Johnson's life is that Johnson was, in effect, a kind of blogger. That is to say, he was somebody who was writing for a penny a line, doing whatever miscellaneous work was thrown his way. Now, bloggers are self-motivated rather than recipients of commissions most often. But nonetheless, it was you know, work on the front lines. It was not elevated work where they gave you a, a study and a stipend. It was just the opposite. And one of the things Johnson did throughout his life, and if I had had more time to talk tonight, I would, I would love to talk about this. One of the things Johnson tried to do throughout his life was, you know, people talk about snark now. My friend David Denby wrote a book about snark. And that was, and that's always comes about, that kind of malicious tone. Remember he mentions in talking about the traps of the critic, malignity as one of them. It always comes about when you have a kind of oppressed underclass who are writing and who feel deeply the injustice of their situation, and that was certainly true of Johnson and the people around him. And Johnson was a tough guy, and a tough writer, but he always tried to figure out how it is that you could give dignity and sobriety to the necessary work of being a miscellaneous journalist. And that's really all until the end of his life he ever was, was a miscellaneous journalist, an 18th century blogger. And he has one wonderful line, which I always love and quote, to, and quote which is that someone said um, he would, about a, another writer, um, uh, he would uh, 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 stop you. I'm trying to remember the first part. He would stop you on your, on your way into a room, and someone else said, yes, and then pick your pocket on your, on your way out. And Johnson said, sir, there is no wit here. There is merely abuse. You could say of anyone that he would pick your pocket on the way out. In other words, there was no particularization in that particular insult. And that the same impulse that leads Johnson always to believe that the value of literature lies in the particularizations of life leads him to believe that what leeches out value from literature is when we descend from particular insults into general malignity. That's one thing I think that Johnson can teach uh, our time. Uh, fer you know, ferment among writers. I was keenly aware in the many and extremely happy years that I lived in Paris, and it's in fact one of the subjects of my book about Paris, Paris the Moon, that that sun had set uh, and that the, the great age of American writers abroad uh, 
had gone. Uh, there were, and when I was abroad, and I think still to this day, there were always sort of uh, uh, green shoots, as people are saying now, being set out that Prague was the new Paris, or Budapest was the new Paris, or Berlin was the new Paris. Um, I don't think there will ever be a new Paris because the conditions of life have changed so dramatically. They've changed for the reason that we were just talking about, that is the presence of the internet and the globalization of literature, but also because if you actually read uh, in that Americans in Paris anthology I prepared, a lot of what goes on, a lot of it is the writers who are driven out of America because it's much cheaper to live in France. You can drink in France and you're not allowed to drink in the United States. And Americans are extremely intolerant of homosexuals and black people and women writers and those people who found themselves feeling liberated in France. Now, we can bracket that by saying they felt liberated in France because they weren't aware of what French people were saying about them. But nonetheless, <laughs> they felt themselves to be liberated in France. There's a wonderful story about, uh, uh, what's his name? James Weldon Johnson, <laughs> black writer, who by mistake after they got off the boat with two other African-American friends, they got, went to a very expensive hotel they didn't have money for called, uh, it's the Hotel de Louvre, I think, which still exists today. And the doorman, as they came in and out, these three African-Americans in before the First World War, uh, or just after the First World War, I guess, no, before, um, would say, bonjour, monsieur, bonjour, monsieur, bonjour, monsieur. And on their way out, he would say, bonsoir, monsieur, bonsoir, monsieur, bonsoir, monsieur. And they were so enraptured by being treated with that kind of dignity by a doorman uh, compared to their experience in America that they stayed in the hotel and cut their stay in France short just so that they could have the experience of dignity every day as African-Americans in Paris. That was the kind of thing that led Americans abroad. Very often we could duplicate those stories about lesbians or about uh, uh, just very thirsty men like Faulkner and so on. But I think that, that's, uh, I think that those are the reasons why I don't think there will ever, not only will there never be another Paris for Americans, there will never be another place uh, like Paris. Not, may I add there quickly, and I know I'm giving you a terribly long-winded answer, um, <laughs> that for me that doesn't lessen the appeal of Paris. The idea that if only if Paris is a cockpit of expatriate writers, it's an interesting place, uh, strikes me as foolish. Paris is filled with Parisians. Paris is filled with expatriates. There are British bankers. There are German uh, engineers. Bankers and engineers, family people, are not less interesting, to my mind, than uh, alcoholic writers. Uh, though, they may produce, though they may produce less interesting work, that I will grant you. Someone else. Gentleman back here. Um, let me just say, thank you, first of all, for having read it. Uh, let me just say quickly to the part of the audience that probably has not read that piece, which I would suspect is the majority. I had an essay in The New Yorker last two weeks ago, and it begins with uh, the end of my collection of razors. I inadvertently collected all of those three-blade and four-blade and five-blade buzzing and glow-in-the-dark razors over the last 20 years. And when the recession hit, I realized I would have to give them up. And that led me to the reflection, which is supported by a lot of modern evolutionary theory, including some done here by uh, 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 Professor Roughgarden, that it isn't in conditions of stress that innovation happens, that uh, evolutionary advances are made. It's in conditions of abundance, when there is no stress. That's when birds sing their richest songs. That's when plumage on peacocks becomes most abundant, and so on. Um, and so the question is, which came first, the peacock or the razor? Which came first, the illustration or the opposite? They sort of came together. In the kind of writing I do, you sort of, what happens always is that you make a kind of leap between 
an obvious object near at hand and a thing that that obvious object might represent in the lovely words that I, I was privileged to hear tonight. It's when dailiness meets, meets meaning. And suddenly there is a synapse that fires between dailiness, the rays you deal with every day, and meaning, the history of evolution that you're interested in. And it's when that synapse fires, not at one end or the other, that you say, I may have a piece here. But now, the thing is, I wrote that first draft of that piece two years ago. And it's been sitting around, I've been passing it back and forth to my editor. Because the other thing you need, at least I need, to make an essay of that kind work is a little narrative, a story to tell. If it's just the relation between two unlike things, then it works as a poem maybe, but I'm not good enough to be a poet. But uh, to make it work as an essay, as prose, you have to have a narrative attached to it as well. Um, it has to tell a story or it just feels clever without feeling uh, emotive. You know, essays are made of partly of ideas and partly of emotions. They're just ideas, they don't work. They're just emotions, then they get published in Oprah magazine. But that's the, <laughs> that's the, way, it, that's the way it goes. And it was only after I realized that the, that the reason, and I will confess, didn't actually happen. I thought it would be good for him to have it happen when I realized that the motive for this narrator to be telling this would be that he had to give up his collection of razors because he'd lost all his money because we were in a recession. And then when I realized that my son was just starting to shave and I had to give him a razor and my decision of what kind of razor to give him would be significant in a way of ending the story, then after two years I actually had a, a story to tell and I could, I could do it. Somebody, just to add to that, because someone asked me about this at lunch today, um, Somebody asked me, because I write or have written in the past, I haven't actually done it much in the last five years, about my children and about my family. And they asked, do you get permission from your kids to write? And when they were little, I didn't, to be honest with you. I felt that they had chosen to be born the children of a writer, and they were going to have to live <laughs> with the consequences of that choice. But once they pass the age of 12 or so, it seems to me that they, have, uh, they control their own stories. And so I, sh I showed that passage to my son and said, is it all right if I write about this? Can I do this? And very nice kind of little 14-year-old sensitivity. I had originally written, my son has sprouted his first mustache. He said, Dad, could you change that verb, please, and make it, my son has grown his first mustache. So it would be his authority rather than the accidents of uh, hormones that had produced it. And I dutifully made that change. But thank you for asking that. I'm, I'm glad you read it. Someone else, gentleman here, Hi. familiar gentleman here. I'm keenly aware of the undergraduate that there's a lot less digging for pleasure than I think there was in my parents' generation. And one of the things I find interesting about your talk is your division of criticism into these three parts. The only one, the one you have been discussing primarily, is the only one that might have the possibility to revitalize the literature for my generation. One that's Yeah, um, with pleasure. Um, I talk about that. Maybe I should make this the last question because um, it seems like a good one to end on. Um, uh, naturally, I believe that's true. Oh, of course. I'm sorry. Um, I have, if I may, embarrassed this gentleman by saying I've known him since he was one month old, and I have, <laughs> therefore, I am used to listening to his uh, his speaking. He's saying, what can criticism give to this generation? It seems to him that there's much less reading for pleasure going on in the world right now than there was in his father's and my generation, where. Uh, and I'm told this by professors. I escaped the fate of being a professor, but most of my friends are professors. And they tell me that where in their use, you sort of couldn't pull the kids away from Dostoevsky or Henry James, and people would come up to you at the end of class and say, how can you possibly praise a phony like Charlotte Bronte? Don't you know, or something. 
that they're much more dutiful now in getting through their work, but much less obsessive about reading for pleasure outside of it, that the demands of the university, and maybe even more significantly, the demands that were made on them in high school to get into a good university have sort of uh, stressed out, have evolved out that thing, and in general, that people read less for pleasure. And the point is, is that perhaps only the kind of criticism I'm talking about can bring people back uh, to reading. You know, it's something I think about all the time because I am sinner one in this regard. I recognize how much all of our attentions have been divided, how easily I will turn to my computer and look at political blogs or uh, at uh, um, uh, hockey blogs um, where I keep up a clandestine identity on one of them. And to the daily, I do, uh, the daily uh, identity, the daily, the daily conversation which in a certain sense never connects to a longer conversation. One of the great things about the kind of conversational criticism that I'm praising, that I think Johnson practiced, is, that it is a kind of democracy of the dead. Johnson is conversing not only with Boswell and the people around him, but with Shakespeare and with Milton, with people who no longer are alive. He's saying, why did you do that? What was your motive in thinking in this way? Boy, you did a wonderful job uh, there. And that broader democracy of the dead is one that seems to have been uh, uh, eliminated by the, the grand babble of the present. Uh, my hope is that, that the kind of criticism I'm talking about, exactly because, as I tried to say at the end of the talk today, exactly because it's spontaneous and necessary. It's not a learned practice, but it's exactly the thing we can't help. We can't help but carry on a conversation about the things that stir us. I have yet to find, I said this in the end of the introduction I wrote to Best American Essays last year, I have yet to find the uh, blogging Emily Dickinson, the eccentric person, Who's, who is writing away on her own web page to the ignorance of the general world. I've yet to find the internet Vincent van Gogh. Again, somebody who's working in complete anonymity, completely without recognition, but is doing the work that he was put on earth to do and is, is getting it out that way. But you know what? I'm convinced, I'm persuaded beyond argument that such people exist and that we'll all be profoundly shamed uh, 50 years from now that we missed them, that we didn't see it at the time. And in the same way, I genuinely believe um, that that kind of conversation, either at the very uh, kind of low and catty level, it often goes on in Amazon book reviews, or at the much higher level that it can go on now uh, in the emails that, uh, that writers and readers uh, send back and forth between each other. It's a wonderful time to be a writer with all the horrible things. Nobody buys books, every bookstore is closing, and no publisher is gonna stay in business. Apart from that, <laughs> it's a wonderful time to be a writer because your contact with readers is richer now, more immediate, than I think it's ever been in, in history. You publish something in a magazine, but you publish a book, and the flood of emails that comes to you through the publisher, through people who figure out what your email address is, uh, send in New York, or if you're as more better organized people than I do, have your own web page, is extraordinary. And the intensity of that connection, uh, often with people who are in remote and distant places, is, is very real. So I think, that that kind of conversation has a better chance of going on now than it has practically at any time uh, in history. We do have to, I will end pugnaciously, uh, break our belief that only expert criticism or power criticism is the kind that counts as criticism and restore our sense that it's exactly when our natural, our common conversation begins that uh, the highest kind of criticism begins to take place. Thank you so much for coming here tonight and I'd be delighted. I'd be delighted to sign some books if you want books to sign or carry on the conversation afterwards.
For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.